Well, if you don't know me, my name is Blake Jennings. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. I'm usually at Southwood, but it's great to be with you here at Anderson this morning. You can turn to Acts 17. That's where we'll be today, Acts 17. As Chip and Debbie said earlier this morning, this is the last Sunday to register for the banquet on December 11th for our 50th anniversary. So please do that. You can do it online or if you'd rather do it in person, just in the foyer today at the information desk, you can sign up for the banquet. We'd love to celebrate with you. I don't know how many of you grew up in the 80s like I did, but if you were a kid during the 80s, you might recall that there was a technology that was all the rage. It was always in the news. It was called cold fusion. And the idea of cold fusion is you combine uh, hydrogen atoms and they create helium and gobs of energy. And so we were supposed to be able to power our homes and our cars and our businesses for just pennies through fusion. And there would be no radioactive waste and no fossil fuels required. It was a great dream that we were supposed to have by now, at least according to Back to the Future. Actually, I don't know if you know this, but a few weeks ago, it was Back to the Future Day, the day that he went forward and visited in the future. That was like three weeks ago. So we're supposed to have Mr. Fusion, cold fusion reactors in the trunk of our flying DeLoreans next to our flying skateboards. We're supposed to have all of that and we don't. And I find myself really disappointed about that because I wanted all of that stuff When I was growing up in the 80s, I thought we would have it. I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised because I've lived long enough to learn that in this fallen world, there is often a painful gap between theory and reality. Just ask the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) Owned by a man worth $4.2 billion with a B. You can buy a lot of talent for that kind of money. They play in the greatest stadium ever made. AT&T paid him a half a billion dollars just to put their name on it. By far the most valuable franchise in the whole NFL. And yet they are still two and seven this year. The Cowboys are proof that the bond between theory and reality can snap as easily as Romo's collarbone. In this world, there is often a gap between theory and reality, whether you're talking about football or technology or the spiritual life. So many of us in this room, we find that same gap between the theory of the thing and the reality of the thing when we think about sharing our faith. Sharing the gospel, we we know the theory of sharing the gospel. We know the gospel. We talk about it every week here at Grace Bible Church. And it's a really simple message. The gospel isn't rocket science. It's not cold fusion. It's super simple. Remember, the gospel is just Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. So you can have eternal life if you simply believe. It's a message that's simple enough that a five-year-old can understand it. So we know the gospel and we know how important it is to share it. We have a sense here at Grace Bible Church that our purpose is to share the grace of God with the world. We've talked about before that the only reason you're still here on this planet is to share the gospel. Because everything else about your spiritual life, you'll do better in heaven. Worship, you're you're gonna do that better in heaven. Tim and the band did a great job this morning, but it wasn't choirs of angels. That's going to be better in heaven. Worship's better. Prayer's better in heaven. You just talk to God. Bible study's better because you got Paul sitting next to you. Everything in your spiritual life is better in heaven with one exception, telling people about Jesus because everyone up there already knows him. 
So God has left you here on earth for one reason, to share the gospel with people who don't yet know Jesus. So we know the gospel and we know how important it is to share it. And yet so many of us aren't, at at least not very often. You see, there's a gap between our theory of sharing the faith and the reality, the practice of actually sharing it in our day-to-day lives. My hope this morning is to help you close that gap between theory and reality of sharing your faith by looking at one of my favorite passages, Acts 17, when Paul gets to speak to philosophers in Athens. So let's jump into the passage. Let's find out how we can close this gap between the theory of sharing our faith and the reality of actually doing it. We're going to pick up the story in the middle of the chapter, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, that is Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now let's pause there for a second. Let me give you a little background on the city of Athens. In the ancient world, Athens was known for two things. The first was philosophy. It was the intellectual capital of the ancient world world. Actually, its heyday was about 300 years before Paul showed up when men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle walked the streets. By the time Paul came, philosophy had coalesced around two schools of thought, which are mentioned here in the passage, the Epicureans who said enjoy life and the Stoics who said endure life. They were very different philosophical systems, but they're going to have the same response to the gospel. You'll see it at the end of the chapter. So ancient Athens was known for philosophy. Second, it was known for idolatry. It was said in ancient Athens that it was easier to find an idol than a man. It was easier to find an idol than a human because the city was so incredibly full of idols. Everywhere you turned, there were full life-size statues dedicated to God. So in the marketplace where Paul preached on most days, there were statues to Apollo, Hecate, Hermes, Zeus, Athena, Justice, Prosperity. Every god had his or her own altar where you could do worship. In fact, at some point in their history, the Athenians ran out of gods. And so what did they do? They built an altar to the unknown God just in case they missed one. There were idols everywhere. 
And in Athens, idolatry was woven into the fabric of life. So you go down to city hall and you're going to have to worship an idol. You conduct business, you sign a contract, you're going to have to worship an idol as part of that transaction. You go out for entertainment, you go to a play and there's going to be idolatry in that play. Idolatry was as normal as breathing in ancient Athens. And that reality leads us to our first principle. How do you close the gap between the theory and reality of sharing your faith? How do you share your faith like a pro, like Paul? Well, principle number one, you got to cultivate compassion, not anger or apathy. You see, it tells us in, in verse 16 that as Paul looked out and saw all of this idolatry, it provoked his spirit. That word in Greek, it means to be deeply troubled, to be upset or sickened by something. And if you study ancient idolatry, you'll find that there were a lot of really awful things that went hand in hand with it. It was really ugly. It enslaved people and it led to a lot of abuse and a lot of really bad things. And so Paul looks out at this city full of idols and it troubles him. Now, let me ask you, how do most people respond when they see something in the world that troubles them? Well, for most of us, our response is either anger or apathy. We run towards one of those two extremes. It's either fight or flight. I'm either going to see and embrace anger at the world and fight against it, or I'm just going to check out and give in to apathy. That's important to understand spiritually that Satan is equally pleased with either of those options. He is pleased if you embrace anger and you fight against the world and all the bad stuff you see out there because that keeps people from wanting to hear anything about grace. He likes that. He's also pleased if you embrace apathy. If you give in to apathy and just check out, well, now he's sidelined you, so he's pleased with that. Every one of us has a tendency towards one of those two extremes. Mine is apathy. That's where my personality goes. So there's just a ton of things going on in this world that break my heart. I, I have to not read the news often anymore because it's so depressing to me. Every time you open the papers, there's some new attack somewhere. So we've had Beirut and Paris and now Mali and you read that and it just crushes you. And so for me, I see all of this evil, all of this violence that I cannot fix. This is not something I can go out in my garage and solve. And so my response to seeing all of this evil, all of this suffering is I just want to turn on Netflix and grab a bag of chips and turn tune out the world. That's what I want. Now, there is a time and a place for Netflix and a bag of chips. No one can carry the weight of the world on their shoulders at all times. But if that is always how we are responding to the problems we see in this world, then Satan has sidelined us. We've given in to apathy. God doesn't want us going down the path of anger or apathy. He wants us to make the better choice, to embrace compassion. That's what you see in Paul in this, in this passage. He has compassion for the Athenians. He does, when he sees all of this awful idolatry that's enslaving the whole city, you notice Paul, he doesn't go launch a political protest. He does not boycott any businesses. But he also doesn't go down to the local pub and drown his sorrows. No, he won't go down the path of anger or apathy. He chooses compassion. So in the next verse, verse 17, he begins to share his faith. With everyone who will listen, he's going out and telling them about Jesus because he wants to set them free from idolatry. And and that's what compassion is. Compassion, at the end of the day, is really not a feeling or an emotion. Compassion is an action. You are actively engaged in coming alongside someone who's suffering. 
Compassion is a sympathetic concern that expresses itself in action. You're caring for someone who is in pain. Now that compassion is something we're called to have even towards people who have chosen to bring the pain into their own lives. Do you notice as Paul cares for the Athenians, the Athenians weren't victims in this whole idolatry thing. They're the ones who chose to worship idols. They were the guilty party, and yet Paul still had compassion for them. And I hope that that will clear up what what is a a misunderstanding that I often see Christians have. They they know, we know that God wants us to be compassionate, but we kind of seem to assume that we're to have compassion for the victim, but not for the perpetrator. And so these attacks that happened in Paris just a week ago, or Beirut, or Mali, we, we feel compassion for the victims of terrorism, but we want vengeance towards the perpetrators, towards the terrorists. And that's not what God wants for us. See, the Bible tells us vengeance, that's in God's hands. That's not ours. What God wants for us is to have compassion towards all people. Even perpetrators of great evil were to have compassion towards them. Just like Paul. Paul, his compassion towards the Athenians who chose this evil of idolatry. Just like Jesus. As he hung on the cross and looked down at the men who had just nailed him to the cross, what did he say to his father in heaven? Forgive them. That's what God wants from us, compassion towards every person on earth, even those who have done incredibly evil things. We're to cultivate a heart of compassion for them that steps out to share the faith with them. Now, compassion, it's easy to talk about. It's hard to practice. How do you actually grow compassion in your heart towards the lost and sinful and evil people of this world? I'm going to give you two very practical steps. How do you grow compassion in your heart? Step number one, you pray for it. You see, compassion doesn't come natural to human beings. Natural is either anger or apathy. You can have that for free. That's your natural response. Compassion is not something you can make. Compassion is supernatural. It's a fruit of the spirit. Only God can give you compassion. So you need to pray and ask God to give it to you. The great news is, is we have this beautiful promise from Jesus. He said, ask and you shall receive. And we always talk about asking you shall receive. What did he mean? Well, he meant that if you ask for something that God wants you to have, then God will give it to you. Great news. God wants you to have compassion. So if you pray for compassion, you can pray in accordance with that promise. God wants you to become compassionate. He will give you his compassion for the lost. But it may take time. It's not something you pray for once. It's something you pray for again and again. And so I'm going to invite you. Let's get really practical. I'm going to invite you to begin to pray every week that God would give you his heart for the lost. I want you to begin to pray every week that God would give you his compassion for people who don't yet know Jesus. That he would take away either your anger or your apathy, whatever comes naturally to you, and replace it with his compassion. So you begin to pray every week that God would grow compassion in you. That's the first practical step. Second thing that you can do while you wait for God to give you his compassion, you can prepare your heart. To become a compassionate person by reminding yourself, there but for the grace of God go I. It's one of my mottos in life. I I invite you to adopt that as one of your mottos in life. There but for the grace of God go I. What we're reminding ourselves is that we are no better than anyone else. 
That's something Paul would never let himself forget. So towards the end of his life, much later than Acts 17, he wrote this in the book of 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul never let himself forget that before he met Jesus, he was a murderer. He had murdered God's own people. And so idolatry, that's bad. But murdering Christians, that's pretty high up there on whatever list of sins you want to keep. So Paul never let himself forget that he was no better than the Athenians. He was no better than any person on earth. He was just as evil as them. The only reason he wasn't currently giving in to that that evil was because of the grace of God. And, And that recognition helped him to have compassion when he interacted with people who were making evil choices. Same thing can work for us. I'll give you an example. I've found as I've grown older that my compassion has grown for alcoholics. Because I've come to see in my own life, as life gets harder, it does as you get older. Sorry, students, it's just going to get harder. Um, As it gets harder, there are many days when at the end of the day, I would really like to check out for a few hours. And what could be easier than just drinking too much beer? The only reason I haven't done that is because of God's grace. Because he gave me great parents who taught me about the consequences of giving into that. Because he's surrounded me with godly friends who watch over me. Because he's given me accountability every week to keep me on the path. I'm no better than an alcoholic. I could totally go there. But for the grace of God. It's because of him that I haven't given into that sinful choice. That same logic applies to every area of sin, whether it's murder, theft, abuse, terrorism, homosexual behavior, whatever it is, there but for the grace of God go all of us. We are no better than any of them. Even the terrorists who are doing horrible things, we're not better than them. There but for the grace of God could go any of us. So make that your motto in life. When you see something in the news, on TV, on the internet that makes you angry, that frustrates you, you see something that troubles you in this world, bad things that people are doing, make yourself repeat this motto, there but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God could go my children. None of us are better than that. It's only by the grace of God that any of us haven't made that same decision. As you begin to make that your motto and repeat that to yourself, it will make you ready for for God's compassion to grow in your heart. You will see compassion grow as you come to truly believe there but for the grace of God go I. Okay, so that's my first step for you. If you want to share your faith more effectively, if you want to grow and shrink uh, this gap between theory and reality, They need to grow compassion in your heart. Second step we're going to find by reading the next few verses. If you'll pick it up with me in verse 24. The God, Paul's speaking here on Mars Hill. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. 
that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We'll pick up the rest of the story later. Do you notice where Paul is moving in this speech? He starts out with some pretty heady stuff. God, creation, religion in general. But where is he taking them? Well, to Jesus. To this man who's been resurrected from the dead. Now he doesn't get to actually name Jesus because they cut him off in the next verse. We'll look at that in a bit. But he's moving the conversation to Jesus. And that's your second principle. If you want to shrink this gap between theory and practice and share your faith more effectively, well, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. I think one of the reasons that many of us don't share the gospel more often is we don't feel qualified. Maybe you're a new Christian. You haven't been a Christian long and you just don't feel like you know enough yet. Maybe however long you've been a Christian, you just haven't spent much time yet studying the Bible or studying theology. And so you feel like, man, I I can't share the faith because I'm not ready. I'm not qualified. I don't know enough yet. Well, that's not true. I have really good news for you. All you need to be able to share the gospel is the ability to talk about Jesus. Because that's all that the gospel is. It's just talking to people about Jesus. You don't need to tell them about predestination or apologetics or theology or Old Testament history. Just talk about Jesus. That's what Paul does to a very different audience. Look at the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 17, verse 2. And according to Paul's customs, he went to them. He's speaking to Jews in Thessalonica. And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. To a very different audience, to Jews, he takes them to the same place, to Jesus. Because that's what it's all about. To share your faith, you just got to talk about Jesus. It's not rocket science. All you need to do is tell people the good news about Jesus. And let's just make sure we're all on the same page. I said this earlier this morning, but let's make sure we all have it clearly in our minds. What is the gospel? It's very simple, good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead so we can have eternal life if we simply believe. That's it. Nothing more complicated than that. That's the gospel. It's simple enough for a five-year-old to grasp. If children can get this, then we can get this. I was talking to a couple after the first service. For me, this is when the light went on. My children turned five. I have twins, a boy and a girl. They turned five, and I would talk to them about spiritual things, and they're not getting Trinity at all. Not a surprise. They're, they're not really a totally understanding sin yet or heaven yet or anything. But they could get the idea that God's son named Jesus died for their sins and came back to life so that they could be forgiven and go to heaven when they die. And when I heard them being able to say that and explain it, I realized if a five-year-old can get it, why am I so intimidated to share my faith? Really, that's such a simple message. And so the second thing for closing this gap between theory and reality is to realize that the gospel is so simple. If a child can share it, so can we. Just tell people about Jesus. 
Just open your mouth and talk about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's done for you, and you can't go wrong. It's the second step. Share your faith like a pro, focus on Jesus. Third step is in the same passage. It's, it's interesting if you notice where Paul takes these two different audiences to get to Jesus. So first two verses of the chapter, he's talking to Jews. He gets them to Jesus going through the Old Testament. So he's going to quote a lot of the Old Testament there. But then he's talking to philosophers in Athens at the end of the chapter, and the Bible's not there at all. He doesn't quote the Bible. There's no Old Testament. There's no verses. What does he quote? Philosophy. Because he knows that's what they value. The Jews value the Old Testament. So that's how Paul talks to them. The Athenians, they value philosophy. So that's how Paul talks to them. And, and what we learn, this third principle for sharing our faith, if you want to share your faith well, you really got to get to know people. I think that's one of the things that, that people misunderstand about sharing your faith. Often you're going to spend more time sharing your faith listening than talking. You spend more time listening to people than talking because people are not carbon copies of each other. Every person on earth has unique fears and experiences, hopes, dreams, needs. Everyone is unique and, and so you need to get to know them as a unique person. You need to know what do they need? What do they fear? What do they hope for in the future? You need to get to know them because first of all, that's just a nice thing to do. You got to get to genuinely know people. People in the world don't really do that anymore. It's one way we can show them the love of Christ is just get to know them as a person. But as you get to know them as a person, then the great thing is at some point you're going to get the chance to, to open your mouth, to speak, and you get to show them how Jesus meets their needs. That's the beautiful thing. Jesus meets everyone's needs, whether we're talking about a crack dealer living on the street or a billionaire living in a penthouse. Every need on the planet is met by Jesus. But as you get to know their needs, you can see how Jesus meets those needs. And so for me, when I share the gospel with someone who's not a Christian, it's actually not intimidating at all because I just start with questions. When we sit down, I often will have lunch with someone who's maybe agnostic or atheist. I don't start by saying what I believe. I don't start with me. I start with them. So I'm going to ask about their experiences in life, what they hope for in life, where they want to be in 10 years, what things worry them, what things trouble them. I'm just going to ask them questions because I want to get to know them as a person. I spend time listening to them a lot more time than speaking. And then when I see that need come to the surface, then I can show them how Jesus can meet that need. It takes a lot of the fear out of sharing your faith when you realize mostly what you're going to do is just listen. Really get to know people well. That's the third step to sharing your faith like a pro. Fourth step is in the same passage. We need to be ready to give evidence. I don't know how much you know about Mormonism. It was founded about 200 years ago by a guy named Joseph Smith. And if you study Mormonism, you will discover that there's some things in it that are kind of hard to believe. And, and Smith knew that. And so he wrote about what God told him. If someone is thinking about Mormonism and finds it hard to believe, here's what you should do. Joseph wrote that God told him, you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. So Mormonism is based, the truthfulness of it is based on a feeling or an emotion that you get in your gut. I, I want to be real clear with you. That is not how your faith works. God is not asking you to embrace Christianity because you get a particular feeling in your gut on a particular day. Now that could just be what you ate the day before. 
Christianity is not based on feelings or emotions. It's based on evidence. You see that with Paul. What does he do for both the Jews and the Greeks? He gives evidence to the Jews, scriptural evidence to the Greeks, evidence from creation and philosophy and reasoning. Our faith is built on evidence. So why am I a Christian? Well, I'm a Christian because as I've gone through life over these last 39 years, observing the universe I live in, learning from history and science and anthropology and human experiences, observing human relationships, I have come to the conclusion that this book is the best explanation of reality as I observe it. I'm a Christian because of the evidence Because this worldview is the best explanation of my reality. And so I want to be really clear as you think about your beliefs, I want you to know you do not ever need to be embarrassed or ashamed of your beliefs. You are not a fool for believing in Jesus. No one pulled the wool over your eyes or scammed you. You are not a simpleton for your faith. No, you believe in Jesus like many wise people before you. Great scholars like Augustine and Da Vinci, Descartes, Newton, Pascal, C.S. Lewis, Francis Collins, who discovered human DNA. They're all Christians. Why? Because they were convinced by the evidence They were convinced that Christianity is the best explanation of all the observable data. And so my encouragement to you as you go out there to share Jesus with people in this world is to be ready to give them some evidence. Now, you don't need to be an expert. You don't need to learn science. You don't need to know history. You don't have to become an expert. Just know a few things that you can tell a person if they ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? Just know a few reasons why it's reasonable to believe in Christianity. Now, I want to help you be equipped for that. So if if you want to discover some of the evidence for our faith, there's a mountain of it, but start with the simple stuff. My first encouragement to you, we've written an article on our website. It's really short, just two pages, and it gives you the five primary reasons why we believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. Because if you can prove that Jesus rose from the dead, you're done. That's like it. That pretty much proves the Bible, that one event. So five reasons from historical evidence why we are convinced Jesus really rose from the dead. To get that article, just go to our website, grace-bible.org. There's a search bar at the top and just type resurrection evidence. So remember that phrase, resurrection evidence. If you type resurrection evidence in the search bar, the first hit that will come up is that article on why it's reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Read through that. It'll take you like 10 minutes. Read through it and then you will know enough to be able to tell someone why it's reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So really simple. That's an easy way to access that information. If you want to go further, if you want to learn more than a couple good books I'd recommend to you, Tim Keller's The Reason for God is excellent, really very readable, very accessible. Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ is a classic. Both of these are, are things that you can, you can sit down, you can read, you don't need to know a lot of history, science, any of that stuff, very accessible, and you can discover why our faith is reasonable. Okay, so have some answers that you can give if someone asks you the great question, why do you believe in Jesus? You need to be ready to share, not everything, but something. Finally, the fifth principle as we think about how to share our faith like a pro, we're going to get this from the end of the chapter, so look with me starting in verse 32. 
Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Maris and others with them. I think one of the reasons that many of us don't share our faith more often is because we fear failure. We're afraid that we're going to share the gospel and we're going to stumble over the words. We're going to babble, not get it clear. Or we're afraid that the the friend we're sharing with is going to just hate us, never want anything to do with us again, or that they're going to reject it and say, I don't want anything to do with this. All of those fears of failure come out of a misunderstanding of what success is. So that's, that's the fifth principle that I have for you. If you want to share your faith like a pro, you need to define success correctly. I think a lot of people define success in sharing your faith as convincing the person to believe. Well, if that's what success is, then Paul had a bad day. Because at the end of the chapter, a few people do believe, but the majority don't because both Epicureans and Stoics found the concept of resurrection to be laughable. It was a joke to them. So they laughed Paul off of Mars Hill. And as far as we have evidence for, he was never invited back. And so that was a bad day for Paul. Actually, though, you know that this was a pretty good day compared to his first missionary journey. You studied that with Brian not long ago. He went into Antioch and they kicked him out of the city. He went into Lystra and what did they do? They stoned him and left him for dead. So if success in sharing your faith equals convincing people to believe in Jesus, then Paul was an abject failure. But but that's not what success is. Because the Bible is clear. None of us, none of us can convince anyone to believe in Jesus. Salvation is something that only God can do. Jesus told us that. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Only God can open someone's mind and convince them of the truth of the gospel. That's God's business, the results of sharing your faith. So all we can do is just share our faith. And that's what success is. Really simple definition of success. Show up and speak. That's it. Show up and speak the truth of the gospel and you win. You have pleased God. God is excited about that. It does, not ha- it does not matter what happens the moment you close your mouth and they make a decision. No, that's God's business. He controls the results. Whether they believe in an instant, whether they never believe, whether you got to share the faith maybe a hundred times with them before they believe, that's God's business. All God expects of you is to show up and share about Jesus. If you've done that, then you're a success. So you don't need to feel this fear of failure. If you show up with your friend and you tell them about Jesus, then there is no failure possible. You have succeeded. God is pleased with you. So as we think about sharing our faith and closing this gap between the theory of sharing your faith and actually doing it, maybe this week as you go to hang out with family, some of whom won't know Jesus, how do you actually do that in practice, in reality? Well, the way to close that gap is to put these principles into practice. First of all, you've got to cultivate compassion. Only compassionate people share the gospel. So you've got to cultivate compassion. Then you've got to talk about Jesus. Just keep it focused on Jesus. Keep bringing the conversation to him. Then you've got to really get to know people. Let them know that you care about them before you try to tell them what you believe. You've got to be ready to give evidence, not all of it, just a little of it. Just be ready to show Christianity is not a leap into the dark. It is a well-reasoned choice to believe the evidence. Fourth, be ready. Or fifth, define success correctly. You are a success in God's eyes no matter the results. 
if you simply show up and talk about Jesus. Now, five is a lot. I know that giving you five principles, you may walk out of here and forget all five of them. So I'm just going to end with one. And I'll boil all this down to one thing that I want to give you as we leave today. I want to give you a tool, a video that was created by Crew a number of years ago. It's a four-minute video that is the most powerful, beautiful explanation of the gospel I have ever seen in visual form. So this wonderful video, it was made by Crew, but last week they customized it for our church. So if you share this video with a family member or a friend, a coworker who doesn't know Jesus, at the end of, a, of the video, a screen will come up that will help them take the next step, and that leads them to this church, to Grace Bible Church. So I'm going to show you this video so you can get a sense of it, of, of what a powerful tool this is. And then I'm going to give you a link. It's really short. You can write it down that you can share on social media or email or text messages or however you want with friends, family members, or coworkers who don't yet know Jesus. And what you're going to say to them, so have this in mind as they watch this video, nothing complicated, nothing scary. You're just going to say, here's a video I found that will show you what I believe. I'd love to know what you think of it. That's it. Totally not intimidating. You're just inviting them to share with you what they think of this. So here's this video tool that we want to share with you. You. Look at your eyes. Look at them. Speckled. Colorful. Each one unique. And I created every one of them. personality. I made you pure, complex, and every day I give you life. I love you, but something happened. You cheated on me. You didn't trust me. sins. 
lost. Someone has to die. You or me. So I took on your sin. So they've created a, a link specifically for our church. You can just share that with your friends. We're going to put it up on the website. I'll be sharing it on Facebook and Twitter this afternoon. It's just grace hyphen Anderson period watch think chat period com. So the idea we're trying to make sharing your faith as easy as possible. And so all you got to do is just share that link with, with a friend, with a family member on social media. Just say four minutes. Here's what I believe. Best video I've ever seen about Jesus. Please watch it and tell me what you think. Let that begin a conversation about Jesus. And and this is a particularly strategic time. Thanksgiving week. Many of you are going to see family or friends that you don't see most of the year. Some of whom don't know Jesus. So what a way. Whether it's this video or or whatever you want to use. What an opportunity to tell them about the good news that there's a God who loves them so much that he sent his son to die in their place and rise from the dead. My hope is that God will use each one of us this coming week to tell somebody the good news about Jesus so that they can come to know God and so that they can eventually come to tell someone else about Jesus so that we can see acts happen again right here in our midst. Thousands of people coming to know the good news of Jesus Christ. It can happen right here once again. Let's pray and ask God to do it. Heavenly Father, We believe that you can save this town and this country and this world through the good news of Jesus Christ. We believe that there is no person on this planet who is beyond hope of the grace of God. No person who has done such evil that they are irredeemable. God, you are able to save every person on this planet and we pray that you would do it. We pray that you would bring billions to know Jesus and love him. Father, we pray that you would use us We pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts with compassion towards the lost. We pray that you would take away our anger and our apathy and replace it with love, with with a compassion that reaches out towards those who don't know you, to tell them about Jesus, to serve them, to love them, to care for them. 
We pray, Father, that you would give us relationships with people who don't know Jesus. We pray that we would get to know them, that we would care about them. We pray that you would open doors so that we can tell them about Jesus and about how he meets every need that they have. We pray that you would equip us and prepare us with the simple message of the gospel, that you would take away the intimidation and the fear and the everything that keeps us from telling people about Jesus. Help us to open our mouth and show up and tell them the good news. We pray, Father, that you would use us. We pray that you would use this video as a powerful tool that would convince people about how wonderful Jesus is. We pray, Father, that you would add tens of thousands of people to your family this year. We know that you can do that, so we pray that you would. Use us as your instruments and as your witnesses, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you guys. Please use this week to tell someone about Jesus.